That's a fitting song to begin our message this morning here from Ezra chapters 9 and 10. I'll invite you to turn there, if you would, to Ezra 9 and 10 for the last of the installments of this series on the book of Ezra. Speaking here, again, of the goodness and the gracious providence of God, but also of some tensions that can come when we become too accustomed to that goodness and providence of God. The famous Greek fable writer Aesop writes of a fox who, seeing a lion for the very first time, was terribly frightened and ran away and hid himself in the woods. He then, a second time, came near to the king of beasts, and he stopped at a very safe distance and watched him pass by. The third time he met the king of the beasts, the fox went straight up to the lion and passed the time of day with him and asked him how his family were and when he should have the pleasure of seeing him again. The fourth and last time, the fox turned his tail in contempt and ignored the lion. And the moral of the story, as you well know, is that familiarity breeds contempt. This morning, as we close out our study in the book of Ezra, we learn the very same lesson. All throughout the book, we have seen God's providential hand, his good hand, mightily working. He's taken a demoralized and enfeebled nation that's scattered across the globe and through a series of events restored them to a place first of respectability and usefulness to the work of God and then actually to a place of affluence. We've learned various lessons through, along the way as how God works. And it's a very appropriate course of study on the present day. Let's just review as we have as we worked our way through the book of Ezra. First of all, we learned that God is sovereign. God prophesied the restoration of the people of Israel even before there was any need for their restoration. Naming the benevolent king a hundred years in advance that he would use to restore the fortunes of his people. This pagan king who was a nobody, who refused to acknowledge of God, yet whose heart God turned even as he does with the hearts of kings. He used in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. God's sovereign, and this theme, of course, repeats itself multiple times as we work our way through the book. Secondly, we saw in chapter 2 that God keeps his promise. God had made very specific promises during the course of Israel's early history. He would give them a nation, a land, a king. And amazingly, through something so mundane as a very long genealogy, we find that God is still at work completing those promises. Thirdly, chapter 3, we found out that when God restores his people, he does not work alone. Instead, we find that all of the people rallied together to make sure that the work was done amidst great sacrifice, effort, planning, excellence, so the people themselves would then adopt God's concerns as their own and build a product of excellence for him. Fourthly, in chapter 4, we found the restoration of God's people will always attract the attention of God's enemies, chiefly Satan, 
but also his various henchmen. And so we find here that there was a coordinated attack of discouragement, deception, even defamation that actually bring the work of God to a halt. And we found that if we're not aware of this likelihood, it can take us by surprise, and the work of God can be derailed again. In chapters 5 and 6, we saw the work of God resume again, and we saw several major themes emerge as incentives and protections of the work of God, and great emphasis here is placed on the ministry, the public ministry, of the Word of God, the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. So it's, it, again, it popped up last week, and it will again today, the preaching of the Word of God as an impetus to the work of God moving forward. Likewise, we saw a resumed emphasis on God's providence and a vital role here, especially, of prayer as the solution to the disarray that had been wrought by the enemies of God. We're going to see that again this morning. The prayer always bathes progress in the work of God. We tend to ask ourselves, what are the many busy things that we can do to rebuild? And God answers, it's not just about being busy. It's about paying attention to the disciplines of the godly life, the ministry of the word and prayer. These are the ordinary means of grace. It's called that in Presbyterian circles, but I think it's a very appropriate uh, phrase to use here. The ordinary means of grace of the word and prayer. We tend to say, well, yeah, okay, yeah, I get that, but, but, but what else? And God says, just slow down. Make sure you're doing those first. And then the rest of the things will come. Not automatically, of course, but much more naturally if these primary concerns are taken care of. The following week, we took a little bit of a detour into the book of Esther and marveled again during this gap between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra how the whole train almost came off the tracks. Now, probably unbeknownst to these people that were living in the promised land, we find a crisis taking place in the land of Persia and God operating behind the scenes in this time without much help uh, from, from a godly people thwarts a plan to destroy his people. And we're inform, informed that even as we are working away here, God is always and always has our back, so to speak. His providence and sovereignty are relentless, and we oftentimes don't know it until after the fact. Last week, we observed the arrival of all the, the necessary temple personnel, a perpetual supply of animals for the sacrifice, the choirs, the support staff, everything necessary to carry out all the rituals and details of the Mosaic Law for temple life so that it can go smoothly and with excellency according to the exact specifications of the Law of Moses, all triggered by the fact that the hand of God was upon Ezra because he had devoted himself to the study and observance and teaching of the law of God. So the triumph here seems rather complete. There seems to be little more that needs to be said, but there's two chapters left, because this isn't a Jane Austen novel or a Charles Dickens novel that ends with everybody happy at the end. Okay? 
we come to chapter 9 and we discover that there is a problem. And, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to think, okay, we're, we're, <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet. We're, we're, still, we're still on the upward trajectory, trying to move towards that triumph. And we'll cross the next bridge when we get to it. Uh, by God's grace, and because his providence is, is a continuing work, we have hope that, in fact, that there will be days of triumph ahead. But along with triumph, we discover that there are tensions, there are problems. The new problem is that the people of God had become so accustomed to God's providence that it had become boring. It had become routine. This happens on an institutional level. Uh, Institutions grow, crest, maintain, and then start to decline. We find that on a personal level too, right? John Piper has a booklet, Don't Waste Your Retirement, which he addresses to the elderly. much more familiar with his book, Don't Waste Your Life, which he targets those who are entering life. So coming to the the end of of graduation, whether high school or college, don't waste your life. He actually writes another book for the, the seasoned members of society and says, don't waste your retirement because it's a tendency that we have because that's what our society tells us, right? I put in my time. I get to age 65 or 68 or 70 or whatever it is, and now it's me time. Okay. But God says, no, that's not the way it is. Narcissism is never under good review if the scriptures be our guide. It's never me time. It's God time. And the Jews have received from the hand of God protection of their per- persons, possessions in their lands, permission to worship freely, Provision of massive amounts of wealth, if we read again, and as, we, as we read in, in the book of Haggai, that they had paneled houses. That is, they, had, they not only had houses, but they had well-decorated and well-apportioned houses that they had put together. They, had, they were experiencing opulence, wealth in the land. Something very close to freedom of self-government. Well, it's under the hand of Persia, but because of uh, their distance and, and, and their strategic nature of the nation. The, 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 the king of Persia had given them a great deal of self-governance, their almost freedom. The Jews have prospered. But the people had become familiar, so familiar with God's provision that they began to de-evolve into contempt for the laws of God. Um, The people had become so accustomed to comfort, to affluence, even luxury from God, that they no longer viewed these provisions with gratitude, but rather with indifference, or perhaps we might say entitlement. And when Ezra arrives, indifference for God's provision had led to an ignorance and contempt for the laws of God, because familiarity with God's providence had bred contempt for his laws. And this is the really, the really the point that we want to drive home this morning. We are of necessity going to spend a good chunk of our time talking about the specific Mosaic laws violated by the Jews and the extraordinarily, extraordinary lengths that they take to overcome them. They're surprising to us. They involve divorce, and it surprises us. It startles us almost to see their, th- this, this occurring, and we're going to spend some time 
talking about that. The fact is, the, the 21st, Amer 21st century American church will never face the specific problems here in Ezra 9 and 10. So I want to make sure that we realize that just as the Jews faltered in the face of immense prosperity from the good hand of God, so we are vulnerable to the same thing today. Not the specifics, perhaps, but to the same idea. And indeed, when looked at in this light, the passage takes on great significance for those of us who live in the land where God has shed his grace. Because, just as in any age, familiarity with God's provisions and God's providence can breed contempt for his loss. So let's start with verses 1 to 4 so we, to, we discover the specific nature of the violation of these people in Ezra's, name, Ezra's day. Verses one, verse 1 of chapter 9. Now when these things had been completed, the great triumph of the arrival of Ezra and all the personnel for the temple, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands according to their abominations. Those of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair out of my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone trembled at the words of God in Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. So the law here that has been violated was the law against mixed marriage, or perhaps that, perhaps that could be confusing. Unholy marriages is really the issue in view. These were strictly forbidden, at least in two places during the Mosaic law. I'm not going to take you here, but let me just read two passages, one from Exodus, second from Deuteronomy. Exodus 34, 15, and 16 says this, Be careful not to make a treaty, treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you, and you will eat their sacrifices, and you will choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters will prostitute themselves to their gods, and they will lead your children to do the same. Deuteronomy 7 says something similar. When the Lord your God brings you to the land that you are entering to possess, and drives out before you many nations, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, these are the names given here in, in, in Ezra, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must totally destroy them. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me in order to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. Okay, so there, there's the... There's the, there's the appeal that Ezra is making here. Uh, you have not obeyed the laws of God as given in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. So specific ethnic groups 
uh, to which the Jews would prove vulnerable are listed here, and we find them sinning. So let's look specifically at the sin, because I think we have to understand exactly what's going on. First, we find that the, the marriages, these, these uh, mixed unholy marriages, were with foreigners. Now, that is not enough of itself to prohibit these marriages. Okay? Moses himself had a foreign wife. We also know that about one prominent Moabitess woman, Ruth, one Canaanite woman, Rahab, who are not only marrying into the Jewish family, but actually find themselves in the line of the Messiah. And if we were to go there, we'd find in Deuteronomy chapter 21, very detailed instructions and parameters on the procedure for a Jewish man marrying a foreign wife. Specifically, it involved the woman's renunciation of her ethnic and cultic heritage. That is, she had to become a Jew. This was very important because the Jewish people had to remain ethnically distinct in order to fulfill their covenant promises and to maintain the covenant function of Israel as a priest for the nations. So the, what made these marriages unholy here is not specifically that they were with foreigners. That was permitted. But rather, second, that they were foreigners who did not renounce their ethnic and cultic heritage, and specifically did not renounce their pagan religion. Note with me back here in Ezra 9, verse 2, that these marriages had sullied the holiness of the race and had caused the Jewish leaders to be unfaithful or treacherous in their covenant relationship with God. This is the concern that had been raised both in Exodus and Deuteronomy. The pagan women had caused their husbands, and especially then, their children, to follow after the false gods. This was the tension. There's also a third factor in the offense, and that is it involves here both the priests and the Levites, in verse 1, and then in verse 2, the leaders and the officials, the princes and rulers of Israel, these had led the way. These were foremost in the violation. And while these leaders were not necessarily held to a higher code of conduct, they were held to a higher standard of accountability for their disobedience because of the influence that they wielded over the rest of the nation. As leadership goes, so go the nation. Now, it may seem at this point that Ezra's response is a little bit over the top. Tears his clothes, tears out his hair, but as we recognize the gravity of the offense, it all seems to make sense. Not only do we have the concerns listed in Exodus and Deuteronomy, but we also have Ezra's uh, purpose in being in the land, being sent by the king of Persia in jeopardy as well. He has been charged with the preservation of the Jewish people, of their religion, both by God and king, and he arrives to find that both are in serious jeopardy. So not only is he concerned about keeping the Mosaic law, but his actual you know, mission is completely jeopardized by what he finds here. And so he is understandably distraught by this. And so there is a solution that needs to be sought. 
first part of this solution is simple. Now, we, we tend to think, okay, what do they do? What do they do? But we don't find them really doing anything until chapter 10. So what's the rest of chapter 9 about? This is, this is a complex, complex problem, right? And it, marrying the wrong person is not easily undone. And in fact, if the New Testament scriptures be our guide, can't be undone if one remains faithful to the commands of Scripture. We'll come back to this, but 1 Corinthians 7 actually forbids this response for New Testament believers. If you find yourself married to an unbeliever, do not depart. That's the command. Stay with them unless they insist on leaving. You stay with them because uh, it is in that situation that often God uses his, uh, your, you as your, the means to converting the unfaithful to the unbeliever unbelieving spouse. But before we tackle this very difficult topic, I want to take a little time to point out the fact that the very first action taken by Ezra as the opening response to this problem is not all that complex. In fact, the first response is so simple that we're tempted to ignore it to get to the real solution in chapter 10. The first component of his solution is an extended prayer. An extended prayer. Two things I want to point out here. First, I want to point out that he prayed. This is significant because our tendency is to solve our problems first, and especially the really big problems, by any means other than by prayer. After all, God has been sent by God and by King to solve Israel's problem, not to pray about them, but a lesson of which we may be reminded, and I think we all know already that it's true, is that prayer is a critical component of God's solution for every one of our problems. Not the only component, to be sure, but it is the first one. But in addition to the fact that Ezra prayed, I wish to draw attention to what he said in his prayer. And if you'll indulge me, I'd like to read the rest of this chapter aloud so that you can be familiar with the content of his prayer, starting in verse 6. And I said, Ezra says, Oh my God, I am ashamed, I am embarrassed, to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to, the days, to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the king of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to open shame, as it is this day. But now for a brief moment, grace has been showed to them from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, and their abominations have filled it from end to end with their impurity. So now, 
Do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come on us, our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you are our God and have requited us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant or any to escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day, but behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Now, this prayer, perhaps, of itself could be its own sermon. We lack the time to do this, but note with me the essence of the prayer. Rather than responding in gratitude and faithfulness, in the face of the goodness and providence of God, we've instead been lulled into complacency and into disobedience because familiarity with the provisions of God had, have led to contempt for his laws. We tend to think of wealth and comfort as good things, and indeed, these are graces from the hand of God. Nothing could be clearer as we work our way through the book. God's providence has worked with such clarity that it borders on the miraculous, he has given vast material blessings to his, to his people, but even wealth from the hand of God carries with it some very weighty responsibility, a responsibility that has crushed a great many over the ages. To whom much has been given, much will be required. And this is something that applies to the very poorest Christian in the room, up to the richest. A few years ago, one of our sons was very quiet after uh, prayer thanking God for the meal. We do this at every meal. We thank God for it. Now, if you know our sons well, you know that one is rarely quiet. And so we asked, what's wrong? He said, I have a question. Why did you thank God for the food? God did not give us this food. Mom made it. So we explained to him that God hadn't made the food, but he had given us the food. His response, God didn't give us the food. I was there when mom bought it at the store. And again, we explained that God had not personally handed us the food, but had given us the money to buy the food. And so he looked at us again and said, that's not true either. I was there when mom took the money out of the ATM machine. The money was already there. Now, we tend to be a bit humored by this because his little mind here was trying to grasp something that's pretty big, but his logic, in many ways, is frightening. And I think we all go through this in our minds, whether we voice it or not. Why should we pray to God and thank him for our daily bread when it's already in the refrigerator? There's already money in the bank. And so we stop praying because we have everything that we need. We stop remembering that God is responsible for meeting our needs and imagine that we have met our own needs. And slowly, our familiarity with God's goodness breeds contempt for what God expects from us. It happened to Israel in the 5th century B.C. It happens in 21st century America. And if there's anything with which I want to go, we, we, us to go away from God's house this morning here, 
It's not the intricacies of how divorce can fit positively into the plan of God, but that the whole need for this extraordinary solution could have been avoided had the Jews simply prayerfully continued to acknowledge the hand of God in all of the abundance they had enjoyed. So kids, never neglect thanking God daily for the food that he has given to you. So the first solution is prayer. Continuously acknowledging the God whose providence has brought us to this place and who offers to us the solutions to all of life's problems. But now we get into the second part of the solution. This is when they actually do something beyond prayer. So prayer and confession are essential parts of the solution to the problem of disobedience. It goes without saying that the most visible solution to the problem in Ezra chapter 10 and to all disobedience is obedience. But here in Ezra, the situation is very complicated because some acts of disobedience are not easily undone. Here in the early verses of chapter 10, they resolve to obey, and this comes to the fore. A large crowd, we discover here, gathers together in the house of God, observes Ezra praying, listen to his prayer with trepidation, and join him in his prayer of confession. One of the leaders here of the people, a man named Shechaniah, speaks on behalf of the large crowd, starting in verse 2. He says this, We have been unfaithful to our God. We have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God and put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to this law. And then directly at Ezra, arise. This matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. And Ezra responds favorably here. Verse 5, he says, Ezra arose and, and made the leading priests, the Levites and all Israel, take an oath that they would do according to this proposal. And they took this oath, which is detailed in verse 7. Then Ezra arose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, and though he went there, he did not eat bread or drink water because he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles until they made the proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble in Jerusalem. And so everybody shows up. Intent here on divorcing their treacherous wives, these, these pagan, uh, 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 rebellious wives that they had married in direct violation of the Mosaic Law. Of course, you're probably all screaming inside of here. There's, there's a tension here going on. All these people are gathered with a goal of divorcing their wives. There's a lot of potential for things going wrong, seriously wrong with this. In fact, you might be saying this whole, this whole solution seems wrong. So how are we going to solve this? We know, for instance, that Malachi 2 says that God hates divorce. And even though Deuteronomy 24 makes provision for divorce in cases of adultery and other sexual indecencies, uh, which is re repeated by Christ twice, once in the book of Matthew and, and also in the book of Mark, this doesn't seem at first blush to be the case here. Nor 
Thirdly, does it appear that the New Testament allowance for divorce in the case of desertion or abandonment apply either? There's a similar situation in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16, where a person finds himself married to an unbelieving spouse, and the instruction here provided by Paul is not to divorce unless the unbelieving spouse is insistent upon it. Rather, they're to remain in the relationship in hopes of converting the unbelieving spouse. This is the same sentiment that we find reflected in 1 Peter chapter 3 as well. So on what ground then can it be said that Ezra 10, in Ezra 10.4 here that these divorces were to occur in accordance with the law of God? This is a sticky situation and good men do differ on the solution here, but let's put the options on the table and then come up with one. Some suggest that Ezra or the people here were misinformed, that they were just doing the wrong thing. They believed themselves to be acting in obedience to the law of Moses, but they were wrong. Some who accept this suggestion note that it was not Ezra who makes the suggestion, but the secular leaders. Uh, but it seems that this is difficult to fathom. This decision is cast as being in accordance with the law of Moses. It is bathed in prayer. God seems to give his approval, confirms their decision by asking the men to take an oath to divorce their wives and even threatening to confiscate the property of anyone who refuses to participate. So it does not seem that they are doing the wrong thing. I recognize that sometimes in Old Testament narrative, God doesn't actually announce this was right and this was wrong. But all the pointers pointing point here that they were making the right decision. Others will suggest that the idolatry that these women practiced was so severe that it included indecent, sexual indecency. And so it was a ground for divorce. We do know that many of the ceremonies and festivities practiced by the local paganism was very lewd, very immoral. And it's possible that these women here were involved in such things. There's no statement to that effect, but it's at least possible that that's the case. A third suggestion is that these people were not technically married. Perhaps they were just, to use the vernacular here, just shacking up, perhaps. And a key component of this is that the most common Hebrew word for marrying is not used here. Uh, but despite the absence of this word, the language is still rather clear. It says that the Israelite fathers had taken, taken pagan women as wives for their sons, and they had, they had committed sin by mingling the holy race. It's hard to suggest anything other than marriage from this language here. So I've, I've knocked down these three options. So what's, what's left here? How do we justify these divorces? Note two factors. First, there's always a tension when we read the New Testament back into the Old. So even while the comments of Peter and Paul are instructive and absolutely binding on church saints, we must obey what Paul and Peter say. We cannot commit divorce willy-nilly just because we are dissatisfied with our spouse or because the spouse has, uh, has abandoned the Christian faith. Scriptures, New Testament scriptures are very plain that that is not permissible. But we have to recognize that the church is not Israel. There are always ethnic overtones in the Jewish covenants that don't correspond with the church. 
if we noted here, uh, the pre preservation of this holy seed, a holy ethnic seed, was vital to the Old Testament covenants. And this emphasis is absent in the New Testament. In fact, there's a lot of emphasis drawn to the fact that things have different. The church is not a Jewish community, but rather it is something that is made up of Jew and Gentile and representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation under heaven. In addition, Malachi's statement that God hates divorce was in response to a much different situation. In Malachi, wicked Jewish men, in order to marry pagan wives, were divorcing their appropriate Jewish wives and, and in order to, to marry these women. So we have a very difficult, different situation here in Ezra than we do with Malachi, Paul, Peter, or even the words of Jesus. So that's our first point here. Second, and I think perhaps most convincing here, is the fact that we do find in the law of Moses some very nasty consequences for the Jewish community for any wives, I think by extension here husbands as well, but it's, it's cast in the, in the context of wives, who are idolatrous. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 13. I'm going to read a few verses here. What happens under the law of Moses if a wife, or I think by extension, a husband, abandons the Israelite faith and follows after false gods? Well, listen to what it says. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or your daughter, or the wife that you cherish, or your friend, who is your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the people who are around you, near you, or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eye shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand, in fact, shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death, because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Israel, out of the house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. So here we find that if someone entices, whether that be a family member, or whether that just be any, you know, any guy on the street, seduces you in order to follow after pagan gods and not after the God of Israel, you are actually, not simply to rebuke him, but actually bring him up on charges of a capital crime, and in fact, whoever is closest to the situation must cast the first stone. Okay, it's a, became, become the metaphor in in, 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 uh, in, in English usage here. But whoever the sin was specifically against is to pick up the stone and be the first to hurl a stone to execute this person. So the law required here execution. So, that being the case, divorce actually represents an act of leniency or mercy. So why do we see leniency? Well, the text doesn't say here in Ezra, but perhaps there is mercy shown because the husbands had been complicit in the sins up front and in this sense shared some of the guilt. In Deuteronomy, which is the passage we just read here, what we found is actually someone who was following after the, Christ, the, the, 
the Israelite religion and actually starts to drift away. This is not the case. Uh, these, these men had drifted away to marry these women, discovered that what they had done was evil, and even though it was appropriate then for those women to be put to death, it seems a little bit unfair because they had come in to the marriages under pretenses that you know, the man loved them and, and, and wanted to spend the rest of their lives with him, and everything was, everything was fine. And so it actually represents a changing of the minds of the Israelite men. Okay? And so for that reason, there is perhaps room here for leniency. So rather than have them killed, Ezra makes the provision, okay, then send them away. So, these, uh, so, so this seems to allow some room for showing leniency to these pagan women. In fact, this leniency and concern for due process may also explain why these divorces took three months to complete. We won't read the whole text this morning for sake of time, but when you read it, you'll notice in verse 9 that a big crowd of men gathered in the rain eager to divorce their wives. Now, this is a, this is a situation that is ripe for abuse, right? And realizing this, they agreed to have each couple examined one by one in on a case-by-case -case basis to examine the legitimacy of the desire for divorce. There was, there was no room here for the unjustified abuse or divorce of these women. However, all this being said, mercy could only extend so far because the purity of the holy seed was at stake. At a bare minimum, the Mosaic law would seem to demand the removal of these women in some way, either by execution or by, in this case, by divorce. And so based on their careful interpretation of the Mosaic law for this rather unique circumstance, 113 men divorced their wives, and the rest of chapter 10 provides a list of each of these 113 men, and then abruptly ends. Yeah, that's, how the, that's how the book ends. Now, in all likelihood, the book of Ezra is only the first half of the book of the returns that includes Ezra and Nehemiah. So in some senses, it's unfair to look at this book as ending here uh, so abruptly. But at the risk of being unfair, it does seem appropriate to look back at the whole book and see the major themes and message that have developed. And I think it's easy to spot. This book is about the providence of God. Throughout the first eight chapters and really the book of Esther too, the theme of divine providence has been extremely prominent. God has been gracious beyond belief to these Jewish exiles, yet in the end they had become used to, accustomed to, habituated to the providence and goodness of God. And like my young son, who had become accustomed to his food being perpetually on the table, they began to forget that God's grace was the ultimate source of all that was good familiarity with God's providence had led to an ambivalence towards God's providence and then ambivalence towards a denial of his providence and this to a dismissal of God's claim on their lives. And in this book and in these chapters certainly lies a lesson for us all who live perhaps in this land in one of the greatest manifestations of divine providence the world has ever seen. And so the message and the lesson to all of us that we need to learn, be aware that familiarity 
with God's provision, his providence, his goodness, breed contempt for the laws of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful again for your your goodness to us. We thank you for the uh, instruction that we find, complex instruction at times, perhaps difficult to wade through, perhaps even dissatisfying at the end. But Lord, we do thank you for the word that you have given to us, that there is an answer to every one of the problems that we face, that there is repentance, there is forgiveness, there is a solution to the sin problems in which we find ourselves embroiled. Lord, I ask that we would not find ourselves embroiled in such situations of sin by refusing to allow our joy and confidence in your providence and provision to become dulled. Lord, help us to constantly be in awe of the providence of God so that we will not become accustomed to and ambivalent towards the laws that you have set for us. Lord, I ask that you would make us faithful to that end, we pray in your name. Amen.